Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, we are continuing our series in the book of Genesis. We've dealt with the six days of creation, and today we turn our attention to the seventh day where we're told that God rested. And today we're going to explore the topic, the theme of God's eternal rest. And of course, with this being the ordination service for Timothy, we'll also be working in some words of application specifically geared to our brother Timothy, but you all are welcome to kind of apply it to yourselves as well. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Hear now God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us this morning. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your infallible and inerrant word that you have given to us. Lord, what a gift that is. And we thank you for the ultimate gift that your word proclaims to us, the gift of eternal life in and through the person of your Son. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for your work on our behalf. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And now we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would illumine the text to us. Give us eyes to see. Help us to understand what your word has to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in Genesis chapter 1, we saw how the triune God created all things by the sheer power of his word as a display of and for his infinite glory. And the crowning jewel of his creation was when he created man in his image. As we saw, he's created man to be vice regents, his kings, his, to be his reflections and represent him on earth to, to spread his kingdom over the whole world. And to sum that up, we were, as the Westminster Larger Catechism says, created like no other creature in heaven and earth to glorify God and fully enjoy him forever. And now we come to the climax of the creation account, the ultimate climax of the creation account, the seventh day where we're told that the eternal God, the omnipotent God, the sovereign God, the holy God rested from his work of creation and he blesses and makes this day holy. And God in doing this not only sets a pattern for us to live by, a cycle of work and rest, but he holds out to us the promise of eternal rest in glory where we will perfectly glorify God and perfectly enjoy him forever. But as you know, the rest of the story in Genesis chapter 3, we didn't want that. And so we rejected God. We fell into a state of sin and death came into the world. And so God sends forth his one eternal son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who comes to do the work of redemption the work to redeem us, to save us through his perfect sacrifice on the cross and bodily resurrection from the dead so that we can now partake of God's Sabbath rest of eternal life forever. And so the main idea of our passage this morning is this, is that God calls us to enter his eternal rest 
through faith in Christ alone. God calls us to enter his eternal rest through faith in Christ alone. Three things we're going to look at this morning. First of all, God's eternal rest. Verses 1 through 2, we read on the seventh day that the Lord finished his work in creating the heavens and the earth, and it says, all the hosts of them. Very interesting, all the hosts. This word host very often has reference to the angels in heaven, the hosts of the armies of God, and the word host also means just a vast multitude. And so we go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. We read the very first passage in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as I alluded to in one sermon, when it says that God created the heavens, that has reference not merely to the physical heavens that we can see, the infinite stars and planets and galaxies, the vast universe that we can see with the telescope. It has not only reference to that, but it also has reference to the invisible realm, the realm of heaven, which is God's eternal throne, and he creates the angels. And so he creates the visible and the invisible realms of all creation. And in the, that comes out for us in a number of places. For example, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6 makes reference to this, but also this passage here in the New Testament from Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. We have it on the screen. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says speaking of Jesus. He says, For by him, that is by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So God has created all things, and we've noticed how all the persons of the Trinity are involved in this incredible work of creation. Here the emphasis in Colossians is on what the Son has done. But what we see now in chapter 2 is that God rested from his work of creation in every realm. And we see something else unique about this day, this seventh day. We notice in the creation account in chapter 1, on all the different days, it says that when God created, there was evening and there was morning the first day, the second day, the third day, and so on. But here we notice that there's no such refrain, indicating that there's ascension which this day will never end. There's ascension which this day will never end. But that raises a question for us. What does it mean that God rested? Did God get tired? Was he exhausted? He created the heavens and the earth, and he's like, whew, I'm so tired now. I wore myself out. I got to take a rest. I need a nice big iced tea or whatever I want to drink. Is that what it means? But uh, no, we all know that's not the case. We know that's not the case. Why? Because we know that God is the eternal creator. He has all power in his hand. He's, he's all-powerful. And we know as we read through the account of creation, what do we see? We see God merely speaking. And by the sheer power of his spoken word, the universe comes into existence. So obviously, God rests doesn't mean that he's tired or exhausted. But what does it mean that God rested? Well, what does the word rest mean? What is this word rest? Well, it's interesting that the word rest here is the word Shabbat, Sabbath. And the word Sabbath, narrowly speaking, means to stop. So God stops creating. 
But the word means a little bit more than that. It's, there's a fullness, a richness to this word. So, for example, the first days of creation, we see that God brought order out of chaos. He brings light into darkness. He forms creation into a state of harmony and peace. And in days four through six, he filled the creation, and he, he commands the creatures to be fruitful and multiply. In other words, to flourish on earth. These ideas, the first three days of creation, harmony and peace, and then the last four, to flourish on earth. Another word comes into view here. It's not mentioned specifically in the text, but this word describes all of those things, and it's the word we heard about in our Sunday school lesson this morning, and that is the word shalom, the word shalom. Now, as we've heard, the word shalom means peace, but shalom is pregnant with, under, with meaning. I love what this one commentator says here, Cornelius Plantiga. He says, quote, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. It's a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. It's very often used of, of stones that are smooth, no cracks, or walls that have all the bricks in place. It's wholeness. It's completeness. It's the ultimate state of flourishing, the ultimate state, we could say, of, of rest. And we see it in creation account. Day six, God declares all that he has made, he declares it was very good. It was complete. It was in harmony. It was set up to flourish in every way to bring glory to God, and God delights in it. And now the seventh day, interesting, the number seven is a number for completeness. Shalom, God, rest. But still, we're starting to get there a little bit, but still, what does it mean that God rests? What is this rest? Well, commentators say that divine rest is associated with temple building. And the earth, we know, is to be seen as ultimately one day as the very temple where God would, himself would dwell. But before that, God creates the heavens and the earth, and before that, he ascends now to his heavenly temple where he enters his rest, commentators tell us. It is there in the heavenly temple where the Lord now is enthroned in glory, not to be inactive, but to govern all things according to the wise counsel of his will and to receive worship and to fill the earth with his glory. This comes out for us, for example, in Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees the vision of the Lord seated in the temple, seated on his throne in the heavenly temple. And he sees the angels, and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. But notice the Lord is seated in his temple. And so the essence of God's rest is experiencing the ultimate shalom, being in perfect, harmonious 
communion with God. Or as Timothy said this morning, his face shining upon us. And we behold the Lord in all of his glory, worshiping him and delighting in him. Interesting, what's the connection between Sabbath and Shalom? Jewish people have a saying. They say, Shabbat Shalom. There's a clear connection between the two. Now, as we think about these things, so God's rest is his, it's his enthronement in heaven, receiving glory, the fullness of glory, and all of those things, harmonious communion with God. As we think about these things, we could say that ultimately, the entire Bible is about that. It's about seeing that state of affairs become a reality in and through now the person of Jesus Christ. And so, Brother Timothy, <laughs> pastoral ministry is about making that known. It's about making God's eternal rest known to people. And here's what we need to understand. Satan wants us to focus on other things, you know, as pastors. How are we going to be relevant? How are we going to make this? How are we gonna... Preach Christ. Fix your eyes upon Christ. Put the eternal Sabbath rest of God before the people of God, and the Holy Spirit will move powerfully upon their hearts. Don't ever move from that. Don't be tossed to and fro. And don't think that you ever can't be tossed to and fro. Because the moment we think we can't be tossed to and fro is the moment we will be tossed to and fro. And we've seen the examples in our culture today, in the church, far too often. Men that we never thought would be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine are doing just that. We could talk about the LGBTQ agenda. We could talk about critical race theory and what that's doing, how it's infiltrating the church. Never think for a moment, though, that we stand on our own. We need Christ to do that. Stand on Christ, Brother Timothy, and point people to the eschatological rest in Christ. <laughs> well, that takes us to the second point. God blesses and sets apart the day of rest. Verse 3, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, again, we recall that God made Man in his image. Adam was God's kingly son. He was to work and to guard the garden temple of Eden and take dominion of the earth by extending God's kingdom upon the earth. And God here sets a pattern for us. Work six days, and the seventh day is a day of rest, a day to commune with the heavenly Father. I love what Sinclair Ferguson says here. I wish I could say it in this accent, but I just can't. <laughs> Since his father worked creatively for six days and rested on the seventh, Adam, like a son, was to copy him. Together on the seventh day, they were to walk in the garden. Thus, the Sabbath day was meant to be Father's Day every week. It was made for Adam. It also had a hint of the future in it. The father had finished his work, but Adam had not. Adam had work to do, to take dominion, to reflect God's glory, reflect God's character, 
to be God's representative on earth. But after the, so God here, he, he works and we work. He rests and we rest. But after the fall, what happens in terms of our work? Well, the ground is cursed. And so now work is toilsome, to say the least. And sin distorts work. We have selfish motives. We have a dog-eat-dog competitive mentality in the workplace and in different, different uh, places of employment. There's, uh, we, we build our identity around work. You know how it is. You ask somebody, what's your name? And, and you get to know them. And what do you, what's the next question? What do you do? And it's so close. We talk about, well, I am a fill-in-the-blank. And it's so easy for us for our identity to be wrapped up in our work. But our identity is not in our work. But before getting to that for a moment, just to talk about work and the challenges of work and what it does for us, I saw this quote from an article. And it turns out that despite all the technology that we have that's supposed to make our lives easier and give us more leisure, and that we don't have to work as hard. And it may be true in some things we don't have to work as hard. We have machinery of all these things. But amazingly, Americans are busier than they ever have been, maybe ever. We don't have time for anything. We're so busy. We're tied up with everything. We got our phones. We got our laptop. We got our iPads. We got the TV. We got this. We got that. We got the internet. It's constant. We can't get away. And people say, hey, can we get together? Oh, I'm busy. I can't. <laughs> One article said this about millennials, how unhappy they are under lots of work-related stress. Millennials, I guess that's people in their 20s into their early 30s now. The article says this, one can't help wondering if spiritual life and social life are not the missing ingredients that can make millennials happier. One cannot help wondering if spiritual life and social life are not the missing ingredients that can make millennials happier. That is all people. And I say, exactly. God knows what's best for us. That's why he gave us this pattern. It's interesting thinking about technology. And technology is a blessing, but I'm, I re, I've seen a lot of advances of technology in my life. I remember the days when we had the, the self-controlled remote control for TV. That's where you get up off your couch and you have to go over and turn the channel yourself. And, you know, we had the, the, the rabbit ears. Remember the rabbit ears? And you, to get... To get Good reception. You know how many Phillies games I watched on Channel 17 and Channel 29? It was all fuzzy. You couldn't even see the ball. I remember these disc-shaped things, things shaped like a disc, were put on a thing called a turntable, and it had a needle. This thing would go around, and then music would come out. It was amazing. I remember this thing called an eight-track player. Remember that? And cassette tapes. I remember cassette tapes. I remember this thing. And Timothy, you're going you're gonna to resonate. I remember the boom box. And I walked with my boom box everywhere, terrorizing the neighborhood. There's that kid Orlando again playing his crazy music. But technology just doesn't make our lives easier sometimes, does it? So we have to be careful in our lives. We have this cycle of work and God says, you need to rest. And in Christ, what we have in terms of work, Christ redeems work. He brings it back to the original intention and goodness 
of work as a means to glorify and enjoy God and to rest. And work is not our identity. Christ is. So I love what Peter says in 1 Peter 4. He redeemed us from our formal, futile way of life through his shed blood on the cross. And now, Paul, Colossians 3, 17, whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so, Brother Timothy, pastoral ministry or any other ministry isn't your identity. Don't turn ministry into an idol. And I can relate to this completely. I know it's hard to believe that I actually sin, but I do, I do <laughs> sin. I do struggle with idolatry. And I turned pastoral ministry into an idolatry for the longest time, right, Ursula? For the longest time, I was in the military, and I felt the call to preach. I still had 10 years to go before I could get out of the military. But I, my whole focus was set on becoming a pastor. That's where I'm going to find my satisfaction. That's where I'm going to find my joy. And I remember telling Ursula, I just not, I'm not happy because I can't get into the pastoral ministry. I'm not serving people. She says, but you're serving people now. You're sharing Christ with people. What else do you want? I want more. I want to be a pastor. So I remember I finally did that. Got, got, out, got into seminary, retired from the military, got into seminary. And I remember when I was in seminary, I worked at a church part-time. I was the facility beautification specialist, the janitor. <laughs> I was a janitor. And I remember I was sitting there, and we had like three young guys on their assistant pastors on staff. And there I was, the retired Air Force guy. I had a long, uh, I had done a lot of ministry work. I had done a lot of preaching. And there I was cleaning toilets. And I remember the thought came to my mind. Why do I have to clean toilets, Lord? I, am just, I, I mean, these young guys, surely they don't have as enough wisdom as, as I do. Why am I cleaning toilets and they're not? And I remember the thought came to me. And I think it was the Lord who put the thought. I'm going to say the Lord spoke to me, but, you know, you get the idea. And it wasn't that, Lord, it wasn't that John you're not worthy to be a pastor. It's, John, you're not worthy to clean my toilets. You know, what makes you think that? <laughs> and so I sobered up pretty quick, and I thank the Lord for his grace, and I realized, no, I have to glorify and enjoy the Lord where I'm at in the moment that I'm at and not turn anything into an idol, even a good thing like pastoral ministry. So Timothy, your ministry, being a pastor, don't turn it into an idol. And also with that, recognize the challenges, brother. You know how it is in seminary, young guys, they've got, they've got visions of what it is to be a pastor. And sometimes it's very sugar-coated, I think. They don't understand. Being a pastor is a labor. And you're being attacked constantly by the world, your flesh, and the devil big bullseye on your back. And sometimes it's thankless. Sometimes you get discouraged. Sometimes you get depressed. All those things. But our hope is Christ. In those times, brother, you turn to Christ. And you remember that you're nothing but an instrument in the hands of the Redeemer, resting in him. That's all we are to his glory. So God's image, as God's image bears, we work 
but work is not all-consuming. We have a day of rest to refresh and enjoy God. And what was held out to Adam, to us, and to Adam was God's eternal rest, this ultimate state of shalom. But we sinned against God. We rejected him. Sin and death came into the world. And so now we have no hope of entering God's rest, utterly without hope in and of ourselves. But then my two favorite words in the Bible, but God. <laughs> but God. What does God do? He makes a covenant of grace. Genesis 3.15, he promises to send a Savior through the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. I know of a hip-hop artist who, is, who has a song called The Head Crusher, and I like it a lot. It's a really good song. I commend it to you. And that's what the Lord has promised for us. Shalom will come through this head-crushing seed of the woman. And God in his grace then, as redemptive history moves forward, he calls his people, he delivers his people out of Egypt from their bondage and slavery in Egypt. He brings them now into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And in the wilderness, he's going to give them a taste, a foretaste of this rest. And he gives them his eternal law. And in the fourth commandment, he engraves this beautiful promise, this beautiful grace of rest. In the fourth commandment, he says this in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 10. Remember, or through 11, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you labor, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Why? For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. See, he connects it to creation. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath, the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so the Sabbath rest is a creation ordinance, and God makes the day holy. He sets it apart as a day of rest. Well, what does that mean for us, practically speaking? setting it apart as a day of rest. Well, I think a couple things. There's a lot of things we could say, but to sum it up, first of all, it means to cease. Stop with your normal labors. Stop. Refresh. Enjoy. Bask in the wonder of who God is and the glories of his creation. And then remember Work is not life. He is. And because he is, we set aside the day. God sets aside the day for us to reinvigorate us, for us to reflect upon the glories of who he is in creation and, and redemption and to enjoy him and to celebrate and to feast and to bask in the shalom of God and his creation and redemption work in Christ. To worship and commune with him. Can you think of anything else better to do? And then, obviously, yes, we're supposed to do that every day. But there's this special day. Because through the week, we're busy with all the different things we have to do. This special day, it's set apart to focus particularly upon the things of God and the glory of our salvation in Christ. And now, Jesus, 
in the New Testament, we discover, is the Lord of the Sabbath, and he transforms it. He fulfills it, and he fills it up with even more significance. So the first thing we discover is in terms of the day itself. Dale touched on this a bit earlier. The New Testament church gathered on the first day. It's interesting, the first day, the eighth day, eight is the number of new creation. So he comes, having risen from the dead, having accomplished our salvation, it's a new day. The day of the Lord is here now in Christ. So in recognition of that, the church gathered on the first day, on resurrection day, on the day of new beginnings, on the day of new life. I love what B.B. Warfield says here. He says, quote, Christ took the Sabbath into the grave with him and brought the Lord's day out of the grave with him on the resurrection morn. And yet the principle of the day stands because it's a creation ordinance. The Sabbath day is the Lord's day. It's a day of rest, to rest from our normal labors and to remember, to reflect, to reinvigorate, to engage in corporate and private worship, to commune with God. So people say, well, what, what can we do and what can't we do on the Lord's day? And that's not the point of the Lord's day. The point of the Lord day, Lord's day isn't what can I do and what can I do. It's about what I get to do. It's about rest, revitalization, corporate worship being the highlight and priority of the day. It's a day to look forward to with great anticipation as a day of celebration. That's what worship is. We rejoice in the Lord. We celebrate the Lord. As Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so the question for all of us this morning, do you make worship on Sunday a priority and organize your life around it? If not, why not? Explore that, and then I would encourage you to do that, to do that. And in Timothy, pastoral ministry is an all-consuming labor. Every single day, there's something to do. Some days, there's more things to do. Like for me, on Saturday, and Friday, and Thursday, Wednesday, Tuesday. You have to carve out a day off. And it'll be hard, but you need to do it. And you have to be relentless in protecting that day of rest for yourself and for your family, for Flo and the kids. And the order here is important, brother. Listen to this. Now, some might disagree with me, but this is what I think the order is. It's Christ first, your wife and family next, then the church. Your most important ministry is to your family. You can't neglect them for the sake of the church. Christ said, love your wife as Christ loved the church. We never stop doing that. Don't let ministry supersede that. It's important. We're called to it. But protect that day. And it's the same for everyone else here. Same thing with your family. Whatever ministry you're involved in, I want to get involved. In work. That's great. But be careful what you have on your plate. Don't get overwhelmed. That's one of our jobs for us as elders, the pastors and elders. We want to make sure people want to serve the church. It's like, well, 
you know, brother, sister, you've got a lot on your plate right now. Maybe this isn't the best thing, or maybe you need to take something off. We have to protect people's time. You've got to protect your time. And then thirdly, God's eternal rest is found only in Christ. Hebrews 3 through 4, chapters 3 through 4, the writer uses Israel in the wilderness as an example. They were on their way to the promised land, but they didn't make it there. Why? Because of unbelief. And God said, I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. And all of that was a picture of the ultimate rest that we have in Christ, that we have of God's eternal rest. They didn't enter due to unbelief. They were looking forward to Messiah, the one who makes that rest possible, who secures that rest for us. We look back now to the perfect work of Messiah who has made that, that rest possible. And to get a sense of that, it's really interesting when you look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. In, cha- in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, Paul tells us how Jesus, who is one in nature with God, didn't consider his rights with God something to be clung to. But he made himself nothing. The one who was seated on the throne, that Isaiah saw seated on the throne, that one steps down out of exalted glory, adds to himself a human nature without ceasing to be fully God. He takes the form of flesh, and then he does that for a particular purpose. He does that to be the perfect covenant keeper. He does it to be the perfect Sabbath keeper. And then to go to the cross, to die on the cross for all of our covenant breaking, for all of our not keeping the Sabbath. He bears the curse of the covenant for us. Isaiah 53. The chastisement of our peace, of our Shalom was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And Paul goes on to say that Christ is now exalted. He's entered into his glory, seated on the throne, ruling and reigning and working by the power of his spirit to do what? Jesus tells us in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He is going to accomplish the divine mandate, the mandate of dominion that was given to Adam way back in the garden to spiritually advance his kingdom throughout the world through his blood-bought people purchased from every nation, tribe, and tongue so that they could come into eternal rest. For every believer here, that's your story. That's your story. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were not an object of his shalom. You were an object of his wrath. But my two favorite words, verse 4. But God made us alive together with Christ grace, undeserved favor, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him where? In the heavenly places in Christ. You see it? In union with Christ, we are seated with him even now. 
by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, all to God's glory alone, we have God's shalom. We have already entered into his eternal rest. Not of the fullness of that rest. Like Israel of old, we are sojourners now. The true spiritual Israel, the church, we are sojourners now through the wilderness of this world on our way to the ultimate promised land of the new heavens and earth when we will enter into the fullness of divine rest. No more suffering, no more pain, no more tears. Transformed to live and reign with Christ forever in perfect Sabbath rest, a perfect state of shalom, of flourishing as we perfectly glorify and fully enjoy him forever. That's what you have in Christ. Do you know how long it would take you to give praise to God for all of the good things that you have in Christ? <laughs> how about eternity? <laughs> Timothy, the eternal rest in Christ is what you're called to declare. That means our preaching must be centered on the person and work of Jesus. We must preach the gospel in every sermon. And to preach the gospel in every sermon means you must preach the, the cross in every sermon. Because no cross, no gospel. You must preach the cross. I emphasize that because so many times it's easy not to do that. You'd be surprised. Sometimes the gospel is assumed. We use words. We just say redeemed or whatever. We've got to tell people what that means. Preach the cross. Preach the gospel. So I bring this to a close. Augustine said this. Because you have made us for yourself, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. That's the condition of humanity apart from Christ. We are restless, searching to fill what Blaise Pascal called that God-shaped void within us that only God can fill. Christ has come, and only he can fill it. I love what he says in Matthew. Come to me, all you who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you've never come to that, you've never turned to Christ, I encourage you, I plead with you today to do that. Come to the one who bore the yoke and burden of your sin on the cross and rose from the grave so that you could have rest. And if you have done that as a Christian, rejoice. Rejoice in the glory of, of who you are in Christ and what you have in Christ and the fact that you have God's eternal rest now and you will experience the fullness of it at the end of time when Christ comes back to consummate his kingdom. I love what Kevin DeYoung says here to close this out. Sabbath rest is about making Jesus Christ the center of who we are. It means ceasing to find approval in others, stopping the foolish quest for our own righteousness and doubting God's promises and trusting that true health and strength and vitality and freedom can only be found when we cease from our labors and rest in his. Can you trust God enough to stop on the Lord's Let us pray. Father, we thank you for 
you, we thank you for the eternal rest that we have in Christ. Help us, Lord, to be mindful, to be diligent, to set apart the Lord's day, to rest, to commune with you, a communion with you that is made possible through our union with Christ, by your grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In Christ's name we pray, amen.